Hello, and welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's going great, David. Yeah, thanks. Great, David. Hello, hello. <laughs> we are here to discuss... Well, if you've been listening, you know what we're here to discuss. We're here to discuss The End of the Power and the Glory, a book which has led to some... some complicated responses shall we say from readers uh it seems early on people were unsure what we were putting them through some of them may have even checked out but if you checked out then shame on you because turns out you got to read a pretty good book if you'd have kept going and we are here to discuss the end of that book the last few chapters and then next week we will uh, answer your questions uh, so if you have questions, you can send them to us. We will post them, post the uh, thread on Facebook, on the, on the Close Reads Facebook page, where you can post your questions about this book. And also, if you want to email us them, you can also do that. I have created a new email. It's just closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. So if that's just a good place for all Close Reads podcast stuff to go to. So if you want to email something there because you are not on Facebook or for whatever reason, then feel free to do so. And I will include those in the conversation on next week's episode. Um, Tim and Heidi, I have a question for you before I get into my real question, though. Okay. So I've got a question that harkens back. It echoes some conversation we had after reading the first several sets of chapters. And I'll get to that in a second. But you both had read this book before. You both expressed your affection for the book and um you have continued to do so as we've read but i'm curious now that you've finished it again and we've had these discussions and you've seen people's responses on social media and you know wherever else um have your perspectives has your perspective on this book changed do you like it now for different reasons um do you look back at why you liked it in the past and think that 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 you don't feel the same way about it um, or maybe you don't feel the same way about it for the same reasons. Does that make sense? Has, has, yeah. has your views on, have your views on the book changed um, during the course of this reading? How do I'll let you go first? Sure. Uh, I, my views on the book have not changed, but I would say that they have deepened certainly, especially over the conversations uh, that the three of us have had. And then seeing uh, and then engaging in conversation on the Facebook page, I do feel that my, this is a, a bottomless book. And we've had the conversation before on whether books can, uh, any book has a, you know, you can get to the end of any book. And I say for sure this book you cannot get to. So I have deepened in my understanding and love for it, but not really changed. I would say it's uh, just the same amount of love for the book. Tim, do you feel the same way? Different? I was going to choose before Heidi did um, the word deepened also. Huh. So I, I completely agree. My, my perspective on the book is deepened. I don't know that it's changed that much. Let's dive it's into deepened. that a little bit more. What, when you guys say, let's dive into the depths. When you say that you, that it's deepened for you, I mean, the implication there is that, I mean, I don't want to say that you, there was something shallow about your affection for it before because that's a negative word, but there's something shallower than where you are now. So like what, what moved you towards that deeper point? Like in what ways was it in deepened or enriched? Is that, is that... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, 
because of the conversations that we were having, because it was my third time through the book, there were just things that I saw that I did not see before. I'm trying to think, I, it might take me a second to remember what those things are. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I guess I'm not, yeah. When I'm you really see something anew, how hard it is. It, it's hard to go back and see it the way that you previously mm-hmm. saw it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's going to be hard for me to remember what are those things that I, that I, um, what's, what are the ways that I used to see the book that I don't see the book anymore now having mm-hmm. gone through it for a third time with you guys? Yeah. It, it, that might be hard for me. Yeah. Heidi, you've read it like 17 times. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, I mean, what do you mean by that, that it's deepened for you? Yeah. Well, I love I, what Tim just said is so true. And I love that comment that it's hard to go back and see it through the eyes that you saw it before. Um, after you've read a book and discussed it. So I, anybody who knows me, probably you guys, most of all, because I am constantly texting people and talking to people who are reading the same books as me, but I love to read books with other people and in community. I've never read this book with anybody else before ever. Mm. So this book's very personal to me. And I've shared some of that on the show. I love this book because it has nourished my own soul and helped me grow in my faith and in my understanding of the world and of literature. But this time around, for the first time, I'm reading it in community with other people. And that makes me see it through other people's eyes. Um, If I'm reading a book with somebody else, I, I do think, I wonder what Tim thinks of this book, or I wonder in light of this going on in David's life, what he's thinking of this or how he's responding to this. So, and I think about that, even in conversations your, your, on the, your, <laughs> your uh, psychological or counseling training or whatever is out there <laughs> comes into play, which I, you know, again, that goes back to the idea of that we discussed last week of does, which comes first, the symbol or the, or the object, right? Do I, am I a counselor because I do that naturally, or do I do that because I'm a counselor? I don't know, but that is <laughs> chicken or the a, egg. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. But that's a huge part of what I love about reading in general and reading in community and doing this podcast is so many of the conversations I have about the book have given me thoughts I've never had about it before or given me an opportunity to say, to form into words, something that I've only felt as I've read it, if that makes sense. So Yeah, yeah. um, yeah, that's, that's what I mean by deepening for sure. I've been thinking a lot lately about what we mean when we say that we, we like something, uh, particularly a work of art. And I've been thinking a lot about how the, about the idea of like, is it something specific that we, well, it seems to me that very rarely can we point to some sort of specific knowledge that we have of something. And that's the reason why we like it. It's almost always something more mm, like atmospheric. Hmm. Like there's something about the tone or the spirit of it or something that's much harder to put our fingers on that we point to and we say that that's why we love something like that. It made us, it took us to a place. Um, like it took us to a place where a certain atmosphere appealed to us or a certain tone or something appealed to us. And that's why, you know, I mean, I, I mean, and then as you get to know a books or, or any work of art, you begin to say, well, this is, this is what's doing that thing that made me like it in the yeah. first place. It's hard to, it's, it's like hard to explain early on why you love something early. It's like, it's inexplicable almost. I mean, that it, it happens like mysterious. There's something magical about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But then as you go, you begin to be able to, as you read more and experience it more, you begin to sort of point to the specific thing that, 
creates that magic for you that like manufactures or conjures, I believe is the word that I'm looking for, conjures up the magic um, for you. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, one of the things that I have noticed, David, the real masters, um, I, I find myself liking a book, and I think this applies to play to plays and to movies also. Um, without being able to articulate why, yeah. when the structure of the book or the play or the movie is really well done, because the structure is kind of working on you in this, on this subterranean level. And, and, and if it's working well, you, you never see it, even though so much of structure is, um, patterned, you know, like a three act play, a three act play, which almost every play is a three act play. The structure is the same for almost everyone. And almost every, movie that we see is a three act movie mm -hmm. the structure is the exact same but when it's well done it's so um below the powerful meaningful um visual expression of the theme that you don't even really see it it, it strikes me as um i saw this video clip of what a glacier does when it's moving like a real a really fast moving glacier moves at something like meters a day which is flying by glacial terms but it's not terribly quick and i saw this this video it had stop motion photograph and it sped up what a glacier does when it moves and it's indomitable i mean it moves mountains and i i think of structures the same way it's this if you're just staring at it you can't see it but if you kind of back out and look at an entire piece as a structural work, then you can kind of see and you can say, oh, no wonder it got me. The author is a master of creating that three-part arc and it hits all the notes at the right time, but I never saw it when it was happening because it's so well disguised. Would you say that that's that in The Power and the Glory we have structurally formally there's a lot of disguise going on there that it's sort of um under the surface which i guess implies a certain degree of uh oh man what's the word it's it's like there's a light touch i suppose to it yeah yeah and it's not I, that could sound like the author is being deceptive but i think it's more what you're the phrase that you chose david it's a light touch um yeah. He, he, Graham Greene, yeah, he knows what he's doing. I wish there was some other phrase that we could use other than a light touch that sounds like um, he's just delicate, which that's part of it. But part mm -hmm. of it is he's just, he's not, he's trusting his reader, I think is a lot of it. He trusts mm -hmm. his reader that he doesn't need to send off the fireworks when we hit the act three climax. <laughs> Right. Hey, Tim, just FYI, you're breaking up a little bit. So while Heidi and I talk here for a second, you might want to check on that. Okay. Um, okay, Heidi. Yeah. You, Tim was just talking about the idea of form. Right. And I was thinking one of the things we may want to look at today, I've got some questions of character that I, that mm. I think are worth 
that we really need to dive into and we need to look at some of the things that have happened. But are there any formal elements of this book that um that stood out to you in this in this last reading that are that you think are kind of uh being fulfilled or uh kind of coming to a head um here in these last these last chapters? Yes, I I think that I've paid attention to form more I more in this reading than I ever have before. Yeah. And one of the things that I think that Tim was talking about that was is the sense of satisfaction that we get when form is fulfilled, that that it speaks to order, um, which is redemptive to us, even if the ending, the content has like pathos or sadness to it. There's something very redeeming about seeing the form fulfilled in a story, particularly. And and in this reading, that happened for me. I saw the just the fulfillment of beginning in one place, going along this chiastic structure, coming back down again, and then the fulfillment of his martyrdom here at the end in the same place where the story began with the same characters looking on. There's just a symmetry, a very satisfying symmetry to it that adds to the beauty of the story, even though there's such sadness and it's in such a bleak setting, there is just this sense of beauty and order uh, hmm. that is settling and peaceful to I, to the reader, particularly in light of the dream that he has. So anyway, I, I think that the form is very fulfilling to read about, even though the content is hard and there's something in us that recognizes that even if we can't put words to it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, let's, let's come back to that dream and the chiastic structures and things. Um, but I think one of the key questions that we have to discuss before we finish this conversation, and certainly anything we leave out, if you want us to talk about it, you know, shoot me an email with a question or post it on the Facebook group, and we'll, we'll try to get to it. But I, one thing we talked about earlier was this concept of, of the lieutenant. And then mm-hmm. we want to talk offline about what we should make of him and, and what kind of sympathy or you know, lack thereof we should have for him, how, how we should view him as a character. And I was struck, I believe it's six times in these chapters that our whiskey priest refers to the lieutenant as a good man. Yes. So let's talk about the lieutenant. What are we to make of the lieutenant? Do you believe that the whiskey priest is, that is wishful thinking? Or do you believe that somewhere in the lieutenant is a good man? That that is, what's going on when he tells the lieutenant that he's a good man? Either Tim's back, so either of you can jump into that. It's hard. Go ahead, Heidi. (laughs) Um, I was hoping you were going to take that because that's (laughs) such a, I, I I like asking the question, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) right. So now we have to insist on you answering this question because you can't (laughs) let that go. Um, um, I, I have to say, I think with the Lieutenant that there is a moral ambiguity to him that, Uh that leaves open to the reader and a valid interpretation either way. So just because the priest says he's a good man does not mean the reader has to take that at face value. Sure. Sure. So, uh, and sometimes that's not true. Sometimes, sometimes in a story you're like, Oh, well, I actually just think my opinion is probably not what the author was getting at. So, but here I think that he leaves that open. Graham Greene intentionally leaves that moral ambiguity with the lieutenant. The priest thinks he's a good man because he sees him being kind and there's to the poor. He sees, I think, in 
the lieutenants, he's, he, I think what he sees is a genuine love that's been distorted and decayed within the man. But he's, he, the priest has so trained himself to see goodness in others that he's looking for it, right? And so I think he sees in the lieutenant, this is a man who really does love the poor. He's doing it wrong, but he, there is a, a genuine core of it, still of the image of God that's coming out in that way. Hmm. Hmm. There's probably more to it, but I'm curious to hear what y'all think. I, I think I like that, Heidi. I think that he, that the Lieutenant has a definite moral framework that he believes is good for humanity. And I think it turns him into he becomes despotic, but I think somewhere back in the day, he thought the church is the thing that corrupts and the people need to be lifted up. Here is this new communist vision of equality and a banishment of superstition. I'm going to, I'm going to throw my arms around that. And that's going to be salvation. Now, I mean, I think he has become despotic. I think he's um, a corrupt fallen character. Yeah. Um, Is he a villain? I think he's a villain. There's a little bit of me that can I compare him to another character in another book? Have you guys read um, Animal Farm? (laughs) (laughs) Have you read Animal Farm Mm -hmm. recently? Yes. Um, I just taught it last year, actually. Okay. I'm not going to compare the lieutenant to Boxer. Hmm. Boxer the horse, though, is this character on the animal farm, just to refresh people's memories that have not read it in a while or those who have never read it. Um, It's basically the story is about this farm that is overtaken from the oppressive human masters and given to the animals. And it's just kind of a fairly simple one-to-one People read it um, as an analogy to the rise of the Communist Party in Russia. Short version. There's this one character, Boxer the Horse, who is just a delightful character because he believes in the new regime with everything that he has. 100% believes it. And he works, literally, he works until he dies. He puts himself in his own grave. Um, But part of the reason that Boxer is such a wonderful character is because he's not that intelligent. Hmm. He can't see that the pigs that are leading the revolution don't have his best interest in mind. They don't really care about the people. Hmm. They maybe did at the beginning, but they end up just caring about themselves. Okay, so... What I can imagine, I can imagine that the lieutenant early on in his life as a young communist might have been something like Boxer. He genuinely believed. Um, The trouble with the lieutenant, though, is twofold. Number one, he's intelligent. He's an intelligent man. He has the eyes to see if he's willing to look. Um, And... I think he's gotten past the point that Boxer was that 
he's gotten to a point where he is cynical enough because I think he has seen and he knows what his kind of um, inflicted worldview has done upon his territory in Mexico. And he's just looking the other way. Hmm. Yeah. So you said, you said you do think he's a villain and Heidi, you said you agree. So Heidi, what, yes. um, what do you, do you view him as, do you, here's a question then. Do you view him as evil? Oh, I think one of the messages of this book is don't forget that everybody still carries the image of God. So it's hard for me to answer that with a yes, although there, he is a man who commits great evil in this book. I do think he's a villain, uh, and I don't think he's disqualified from the label of villain because there's some sympathy and some opportunity for him to be redeemed. Right. So that's, that is the thing that the, that the priest is always seeing in people is here's how God could redeem you. Follow this, like find this thread and follow it. And perhaps it will lead to redemption. And that's what he keeps drawing out intentionally or not. I'm really not sure in these last conversations that he has with the Lieutenant, um, Mm. that, there is in him a genuine desire to to help the poor in his country and a true sense of patriotism. Could that become then, is that the last vestige of the image of God in this man? Is that the only thing that could lead him to redemption? Um, so I, I am unwilling to say that he's evil and ontologically, but I am willing to say he is a villain and he does commit great evil. And I don't see him sympathetically. What I'm saying doesn't mean I necessarily think, oh, he is a, a good man and he's not that bad and he didn't do such a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. So I hope yeah. that that's mm-hmm. clear. Mm-hmm. Were you, has there been talk you guys about, forgive me because I've been so out of the Facebook loop because of work. Has there been talk about whether or not he's an evil character, whether or not he's a good character or something like that? Yes, there's been some rich conversation about that. Uh, and, and I think consistent with the book, like not, yeah, not yeah. In a, you know, like within the context of the story, you know, I so-and-so think he's, you know, I'm not sympathetic. I think he's just bad. Yeah. And, and then other people saying, no, I can see what the priest sees in him. And so there, there's just been some really rich conversation about yeah. that. And I think it's very important to the end of the novel and how you read this novel uh, and how you do interpret this lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Are they two equals, you know, or are they both on a path of redemption? Do they diverge here? I think the dreams make that pretty clear. I think the dreams make my, I, w- I would take a stand and say the dreams make it very clear that the lieutenant is not on a path to redemption and that the priest is. Okay. Hold that thought for a second then. Cause mm-hmm. I want to, I want to actually read those passages. So if one of you wants to find the lieutenant's dream and one wants to find the priest's dream, then you can each read those and we'll come back and we'll do a little comparison. But let's, before we do that, then let's flip the question. So the, we've, we're discussing the, whether the, um, the, well, hold on, Tim, you want to find the lieutenants and, how do you want to find the, the priest? Sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, find, find that and keep your finger there. Um, but we've discussed whether the, you know, the evilness of the Lieutenant and whether he's a villain. And I asked the villain question in part because I want to compare him a little bit to the priest. Do you believe then that the priest hero 
which is the great question, right? That the boy asks the mother who's telling the story. That conceit, that framework is so interesting and so non-traditional in a lot of ways. Um, The way, the way we have the, but it does get into the key, the chiasm, but the way you have the mom telling the story, which if you read it, kind of distractedly you could be like wait was this whole thing like a dream or was this whole story the story that the mother's telling and then the boy's like well what about the one that just got shot right now so he says to her is you know it was that was that guy a hero or something i don't know if you use that exact word but he says something like that so given that do you think the books i think the book is begging the question right um do you if if the lieutenant's a villain is is the priest a hero is he our <laughs> hero and I don't mean protagonist. I, I, I mean, I'm using the term very specifically. Right, right. Right. <laughs> Boy, I sure think he is. He is something like an in, inside-out hero, though. Um, I mean, are you talking... He, I mean, is that different than an anti-hero? Which is, the, you know, the anti-hero yeah, thing. Yeah, because I, I started to say anti-hero. Um, but I don't think he's an anti-hero. I, mm-hmm. I, maybe there's some special technical word for the type of hero that he is, but he's almost like, in some ways, he's almost like a comic hero who in, in so many great comedies, there's kind of a a bumbling fool who despite himself manages to pull the estranged parties together and kind of save the day, but he doesn't intend to do it. He's, Hmm. kind of fails in all of his attempts. And I, in some ways, I think the, the whiskey priest is more akin to a comic hero or I, maybe an inside out hero is the phrase that I used from a comedy than a traditional um, hero or a traditional anti-hero. He, the thing I think, how do I, I want to like, say this the right way. I, I think the only thing about the priest that he seems to do well is he just keeps going. He just keeps going and he just does what he knows is right. Everything he in plods. him is saying he plods and he doesn't want to do it. I mean, there's like, I can't think of a scene where he, you know, there is no scene where he leaps to his feet and says, Yes, for the glory of Mother Church. Yes, for our son, Jesus Christ, I will do this task. He doesn't. He drags himself up. He drags him. He, he carries the, the dead boy all the way. It's torturously long. Um, he administers the sacraments almost despite himself. The only time that it seems to me like he has some level of joy in his work is when he's in prison. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What, so I've been thinking about like, what are the characteristics of a hero as you're talking? Because I was thinking, you know, the anti-hero is typically the hero or the, the protagonist of a story or whatever that sort of is ostensibly meant to be your hero and accomplish something, but who does so without the customary attributes of the traditional hero archetype, right? Yeah. So the traditional hero, the heroic, the t- traditional heroic archetype is going to be what? Courageous. What, what would you say are some of the things that skilled? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Strong. I, yeah, confident. I, idealistic. Yeah. Yes. Will, willing. Moral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
unselfish, I suppose. Do so. Do we do? I mean, are these things that do or do not characterize the whiskey priest? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a great it's, way of asking the question. Right. Well, and Tim brought this up a few weeks ago about the difference between honor and public dignity. Right. So, um, I mean, this is no Achilles or Odysseus. This is. Um, he, there's a lot of weakness in this man. Yeah, but so, since you mentioned that, you just mentioned two people that had a lot of weakness as well. <laughs> right. But they did fulfill that hero archetype, right? Another right. another characteristic of a hero is that they go through some sort of journey of the soul, some kind of becoming in the course of a story. That's part of... Otherwise, it's just a fable or a legend. You know, like Paul Bunyan, mm. that's not really a hero, right? <laughs> so, um, So that... That sense of becoming that that and of course that connects to the universal story of Christ, right? That 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 somehow the hero has to die and then rise again. So some kind of journey of the soul, some kind of become moral becoming or unfolding happens to every hero, a testing. So that is, I mean, that is the power and the glory, is this constant test. And there's I, I think it's in. It is because I'm now I'm, I know this actually. I was just reading the end of the affair, and what the first line of the end of the affair is: a story has no beginning and no end. The writer chooses where to begin the fragment of the story that he tells. Right. So that we see here, this entire book is this entire novel is just the test of this hero. So hmm. in terms of the journey of the soul, he definitely fits the bill here. Yeah, for sure. The priest does, certainly. But I do think of, I think there's a line from Harry Potter, which is appropriate, apt, when Dumbledore says to him, the time has come that you must make a choice between what is right and what is easy. And I think that in many, in many ways encapsulates the heroic journey in any given story. That's the thing that is so satisfying to the reader is that when the hero chooses what is right over what is easy. And that I think we have in the power and glory, but we definitely don't have the skill, the courage, like the, or at least the outer form of courage um, so that is you this, have is in others. A, is he like Aristotle's tragic hero? Hmm. No, I, I, there's something, something that doesn't fit with that, but I'd have to formulate the words to that. Tim, what do you think? Well, I was going to ask, I was going to kick it back to David naturally. What, what are the thing? what are the aspects of, um, Aristotle's hero? What well, sort I don't of, know that. that's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, okay, let's start. Let's, well, let's I think, go, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say in the poetics, Aristotle talks about the protagonist and the plot is kind of two sides of the same coin. And I, mm-hmm. I think that Aristotle is really, he in the poetics is chiefly concerned with the plot. So his way of getting it character is getting it plot. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the okay. things that he does emphasize about the main character though, is that it, I think he says it has to be someone, this is my words, not his, worthy of, of deep respect. Yes. Yes. Well, but that's and but also I think it isn't in the poetics isn't the key thing the idea of pity. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the catharsis of pity and fear, which I think 
is, it, okay, so I can put a little bit more of this into words because Aristotle does say that the hero has to be larger than life at the top of fortune's wheel at the beginning of the story. Yeah, um, right, 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 right. That uh, has some kind of public dignity is essential to an Aristotelian hero, which disqualifies the priest right off the bat. Um, the other thing is this, exactly what yeah, you said, Tim, like exactly what you said to him about this sense of overcoming that's so satisfying to us. Like there's nothing more satisfying than when Odysseus leaps up on the table and he draws the bowstring back and he's like, you are all about to die. Yeah. Blood will be had, right? That, that moment of triumph over the enemy is essential to a heroic journey. And we do not necessarily have that in the power and the glory unless you're looking for it. You have to have eyes to see it. And then I think it's there, but it is exactly what you said, inside out. It is the rebirth of the priest is in his death. And so I think if you want to find it, you can, but you could also make a case it's not there. And so I would say as a traditional hero, you could make a literary case either way. Hmm. What you just said, though, is really interesting that he... He rises up. Well, I don't. I don't know. I can't remember what you said exactly, but he through his death, right? Um, yeah. uh, what, what was the exact word you just said? The sen- the I don't sen- know, but I'm sure it was something really like profound. that. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Heidi, I can affirm <laughs> so that. Found that I immediately forgot what it was. <laughs> um, we can't remember it, but, but it was that's so wise. What you're saying there goes to the idea of catharsis. You used that word a minute ago as well, because yes. th- doesn't that come over to you know, like the Aristotelian? Yes. What he talks about catharsis being. Is just the fear. word purgation or something like that? Yes, yes. So it's, a, it's it, the catharsis comes through the purgation of s- some experience that the right. Well, Aristotle says, says pity, pity, and fear. Those are his two. The thing we're afraid of happening doesn't happen, or it does, but it's redeemed in some way. There's the that's yeah, that's the fear part, yes, and the pity part is the love that you have for the hero, like and and the surrounding society that's impacted by the heroic journey. Well, so do you think that that catharsis happens in the, in the death of the priest that you, you I mean, do, is there, is the death a sense of a sort of purification that in the end eliminates the possibility of this being truly a tragedy? Well, Graham Green subverts that the moment of his death by making it third person. Right. So it's just right. Mr. Tenshrot watching it through the window and it, he even uses a phrase, something like, I don't remember what it is, but it's something, uh, let's find it real quick. Do you have it right there, anybody? The, something about him being like baggage or extra matter. Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, the little man was a routine heap beside the wall. This is on page 216. Something unimportant, which had to be cleared away. Oh yeah. So the moment of the priest's death is very anticlimactic. But I think I would make the case that Graham Greene does that on purpose because the true moment of redemption is the dream. Yeah. So that's... Isn't it interesting also just stylistically, the fact that we are so far away geographically from the priest when we know that he's going to be shot. Mm -hmm. It's not just that we're seeing it him through a third person's eyes that third person is so far away so distant and it it has the effect i think of it's not just the gaze of the narrator is now on mr tinch or the other 
or any other character. Um, but it seems like now the work of this inside out hero is now being applied to the characters that are being seen not only that but we've had four layers of perspective between us and the last time we were in the head of the the whiskey priest right you know so the beginning of the book we get tench and then we get the girl and then we get the lieutenant right before we ever get to inside the priest's head and then here we get that sort of inverse we get the lieutenant and then we get the girl's parents and then we get coral and then we get the story well we also have the story that's happening Yes. And then we get tension at the beginning. So there's that, that's the chiastic inversion there. Yeah. 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 And, and so this, you know, he's, re, he's removing us from the sort of core of the narrative four times. Right. Um, and I want, I, part of me wonders like, did he write the whole thing and then he wrote these like codas at the end and then was like, I guess I should go write. Like, did he create that chiasm, chiasm, whatever, after he wrote the sort of course, the, the core of the book, I'd be very interested to know what he did process wise there. I, I'd be curious to know also. It, it, but it depersonalizes it in some ways. It does. I, my hunch is that he, that the, that structure was part of the original plan because for me, it's the reason that the book works. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think the book, I mean, this is like to say the obvious works without that beginning, those kind of like bookends on either side, even though strangely enough, the most riveting part of the book is that middle part. Right. Okay. And you so, mentioned it a couple podcasts ago, David, that it's just like we start flying. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to read when the priest is on the road. riding through the jungle and he's on the road. Yeah. Okay. So then let's talk about. So you said it doesn't, that, those are kind of strong words, relatively speaking. Yeah. Maybe not for this show, but <laughs> you said, you said that um, it doesn't work without those scenes. So what do you mean? Like if you, if you take out this, the tench scene, the, the, Coral's parents seeing the, I, what, what do you mean? It doesn't work without those. I'm not entirely sure. I don't disagree with you, but I'd like to hear more. Yeah. What you mean by that? I think for me, if I were to say why the book works, it's because this, I'll call him a comic hero, but you know that I don't mean it's funny. You, you comic in that he, I think he's a comic hero in that he does the will of God and the will of God in some ways is efficacious through him despite him. But the only way that we can see that is by seeing these characters that appear at the beginning and that appear at the end. And we can see that there's some glimmer of change and of hope in at least most of the characters at the, in the, in the final coda. Hmm. So if we just see the priest and his struggle without seeing what, what happens, then I think that the, the, the book, how do I say this? It would be, it would seem like we just witnessed a man bungle through haphazard beliefs, doing what he thought was honorable but was his cause, was there anybody else for him? Was there any sort of like divine power that was um, fulfilling his, it, its will through this priest? I don't think we could see it. Hmm. We would just see defeat after defeat. Okay. So how, and, and how, 
can you clarify for me how, for example, the the scene with Carl's parents does that for us? I don't think it's strong, but I think that you don't think they, it's, like that scene is strong. No, no, I'm sorry. I don't think that the kind of like possibility of redemption is is blaringly loud. Oh, oh, I, I should say. I think it's very so. delicate. But it seems to me like they've got this is the first opportunity. I wish you could find the lines. Um, they might actually have a marriage. Huh. Hmm. Or the potential for one. Hey, Heidi, say that again. You broke up on me. Yeah, me too. Did we lose Heidi? No, I'm here. Oh, can you say it again? Um... I said, or the potential for or the potential. That's a, a better marriage. way of saying it. Right. Well, and I think we also, if we're paying attention, we can put together the clues of what happened to Coral and kind of piece together the impact that the priest had on her life. Right. Uh-huh. Like that is, and, and again, which goes to the theme of death being a redemptive force, something we're afraid of, and yet it, it has. It, it takes us into the kingdom or a potential kingdom of God. And that we, we can see at least happen to Coral, which may be a path, like you said, potentially a path to redemption for her parents. Yeah. Heidi, mm-hmm. what happened to Coral? I was going to say, maybe we should unpack that more for people who are reading this for the first time. Well, I think that that's left ambiguous, but I think we can put together some clues. I have a theory about it, and I'm curious what, is what it? your theory is. So they call, she's clearly died, um, and I think died at the banana plantation, and I think her death is connected with the dog with the broken back, So and the, the death of the boy. So... What I think happened is there's some kind of standoff between, obviously, Calver, which, by the way, his name, Calver, Calvary, right? So there's the the American gringo has been shot, I would, I mean, I, I'd guess by the police who are hunting him down mm-hmm. at the banana plantation. So I think there was some kind of standoff in which the children were used as human shields and both of them were shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that is because of the boy, the death of the boy who was shot, Calver shot. Um, the priest says something to Calver about children dying. Um, and then one little tiny line, and I can't find it right now, but you guys can find, tell me if you, you know, post on the Facebook page, if you think I'm reaching too far, but the, either the mom <laughs> or the dad says something Careful. like, I know that Careful scoundrel, I know. Right. I'm I mean, yeah, that that scoundrel dot 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 is one of the lines in the conversation in that chapter between the two, between Mr. and Mrs. Fellows. So, um, I think she came presumably to a, about the lieutenant. Yes. So yeah, I, yeah. So I think that there. I think the dog, and I didn't want to say this last week when we were talking about it, but I think that another purpose of the dog is to communicate to the readers to expect that something violent happened in this place. So, because the dog is injured, right? right? So it's a clue pointing towards the end of the novel in which we learn that Coral and this child, I, I, I think have been 
collateral damage between in the, the, the death or the shooting of Calver. I think that's definitely a reasonable reading, but I'm, I, one of the things I've been thinking about and since I finished reading it is why Graham Greene did it. Like, why does he not just tell us? Right. Yeah. Like in some ways, you know, I think that's where some people are frustrated by authors of the era. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. And that they, they feel like, why can't people just tell us what they're trying to say? It's the complaint about T.S. Eliot's poetry and things like that, you know. But so, so why do you think he does this? Why does he leave it so, so vague, so open ended? Why does he not give us resolution yeah. in some of these areas? We have we have certain sorts of resolution, but in other ways, we we really don't get the catharsis that we're looking for. Right, I agree. Well, and I don't know. I I think it would have been easy to to add that into that conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Fellows, something that gives us more decoding of Coral's death. So I do, I don't know, Tim. Yeah, I mean, although if they're never, if they just are like, we're never going to talk about this, then they're not going to talk about it, you know? That's a great point. And I think it's consistent with the characterization, certainly. Yeah, that's, um, that's not a woman who's going to like, she's not going to process her thing, you know, process things. Right. That to me is like, that's a really good answer as to why we don't get more information because it fits the character. But from Graham Greene's point of view, man, I seriously, I closed the book and I thought, what happened to Coral and why didn't he find some way to tell us? He couldn't have told us through his mother's mouth. I think that's consistent Mm -hmm. and well done. But it's such a, it's, uh, I started to use the word mystery hmm. and mystery <laughs> would, <laughs> mystery would say, and it's good, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I would say the mystery, the unraveled mystery is, um, is a sign of success. I, it's, I'm a little bit befuddled by it. You guys know me. I don't need it all spelled out at all. So, right. But I would like to have had a little bit more of a clue. I totally can, I can see Heidi's theory working. Heidi, that's like, that's some deep level stuff. Right. So do you think then, so, but, but if, if Coral died Mm -hmm. as collateral damage, as you put it, what does that mean? What, What is that? What does that mean for, the sort of theme of the story, like for the catharsis right. that we're supposed to expect. I mean, what does that, and even the death of the boy, right? What, I mean, what? Okay. So yes, this is a great question. And I've thought a lot about this, you guys, because I have read this book so many times. So <laughs> you've had to process this I, a lot of times. Right. So I've, I've, I've thought and thought and thought about this. So Coral would be the only actual conversion of the story. So every other person is already Catholic or is violently anti-Catholic. So Coral, I think all of this traces back to her. And I think if, if my theory is right, then it ties together all of these, um, disconnected anecdotes within the story and makes it the thread of one thing leading towards the martyrdom. 
right? Because it had to be Coral, since she is the only conversion, it had to be Coral who greets him in the dream and leads him into the kingdom, gives him the news, right? He, she's the only one who could comfort him unless it was his daughter. She's the only other option. Mm-hmm. of somebody who could lead the priests into the kingdom. Well, okay, yeah. let's let's look at these scenes. Let, let's look yeah. at the dreams. Uh, let's look at I them. love this, by the way, Heidi. I love this. I want this to be true. I want it to be true. <laughs> let's I, go ahead. Okay, well, I lost my place and my excitement in talking about this. My bookmark uh, yeah, dropped yeah, out. And I, haven't, the... <laughs> I haven't looked okay, either. Okay, so the, yeah. we're talking the priest first, right? So what's where's the priest's dream? The I could dream? have been looking for this while you guys were talking. Well, I had I it marked, that? and then I stood up in my excitement, and the, the bookmark fell out. But then I found it again. It's on page 209 in the Penguin Classics version. And is the lieutenant... I can't... Is the lieutenant before this? Yes, the lieutenant is before. Um, it's the day, It's the page before, 207. I think you have different page numbers, though, but different pagination, but it's just one page before. Hey, you know that 207 is not one page before 209, right? <laughs> Well, it's one flip of the page. So, <laughs> one active. Even, one even action, that word yes. page is subject to some sort of hermeneutical, you know, like confusion. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out, though, because I do understand how numbering works. <laughs> That's... Uh, let's actually go. Um, let's do the let's do the lieutenant first, then, since okay. he's first. It's just one quick line, um, and the paragraph begins with "No, no, a second, He said roughly. Um, that's the that's the lieutenant, Heidi. Yes, yes yeah. the, okay. and it's on yeah two I'm pages to, before the. I'm just trying to decide if we should read any of the bit before. Um. Okay, so he's yes. Yeah, so the lieutenant's been with the with the whiskey priest. He informs him that that the other priest won't come here as confession. Um, um, he tells the priest, "You have such odd ideas." The priest tells him, "You're a good man." A couple times, they talk about the forgiveness of sins. Um, okay, so let's. Okay, so bottom two hundred six in mine is where. I think we should read this a little bit beforehand. Um, he, he says, is there, is there nothing more I can do for you? And then the priest says, no, no, nothing. And then Tim, why don't you pick it up there and read to the section break? Where it says, uh, the, the lieutenant, lieutenant reopened? Yeah. <clears throat> the lieutenant reopened the door, mechanically putting his hand upon his revolver. He felt moody as though now the last priest was under lock and key, there was nothing left to think about. The spring of action seemed to be broken. He looked back on the weeks of hunting as a happy time, which was over now forever. He felt without purpose, as if life had drained out of the world. He said with bitter kindness, he couldn't summon any hate of the small hollow man. Try to sleep. He was closing the door when a scared voice spoke. Lieutenant. Yes? You've seen people shot, people like me. Yes. Does the pain go on a long time? No, no. A second, he said roughly, and closed the door. He picked his way across the whitewashed yard. He went into the office. The picture of the priest and the gunman were still pinned upon the wall. He tore them down. They would never be wanted again. Then he sat at his desk and put his head upon his hands and fell asleep with utter weariness. 
He couldn't remember afterward anything of his dream except laughter, laughter all the time, and a long passage in which he could found, and a long passage in which he could find no door. Okay. Um, okay, then let's jump over to two pages ahead. <laughs> two pages uh, to two hundred nine. Heidi, where do you uh, start with? Um, the night was slower. The night was slower than the last he had spent in prison because he was alone. Only the brandy, which he finished about two in the morning, gave him any sleep at all. He felt sick with fear. His stomach ached and his mouth was dry with the drink. He began to talk aloud to himself because he couldn't stand the silence anymore. He complained miserably. It's all very well for saints. And later, how does he know it only lasts a second? How long's a second? And then he began to cry beating his head gently against the wall. They had given a chance to Padre Jose, but they had never given him a chance at all. Perhaps they had got it all wrong, just because he had escaped them for such a time. Perhaps they really thought he would refuse the conditions Padre Jose had accepted, that he would refuse to marry, that he was proud. Perhaps if he suggested it himself, he would escape yet. The hope calmed him for a while, and he fell asleep with his head against the wall. He had a curious dream. He dreamed he was sitting at a cafe table in front of the high altar of the cathedral. About six dishes were spread before him and he was eating hungrily. There was a smell of incense and an odd sense of elation. The dishes, like all food in dreams, did not taste of much, but he had a sense that when he had finished them, he would have the best dish of all. A priest passed to and fro before the altar saying mass, but he took no notice. The service no longer seemed to concern him. At last, the six plates were empty. Someone out of sight rang the sanctus bell, and the serving priest knelt before he raised the host. But he sat on, just waiting, paying no attention to the god or the altar, as though that were a god for other people and not for him. Then the glass by his plate began to fill with wine, and looking up, he saw that the child from the banana station was serving him. She said, I got it from my father's room. You didn't steal it? Not exactly, she said in her careful and precise voice. He said, it is very good of you. I had forgotten the code. What did you call it? Morse. That was it, Morse. Three long taps and one short one. And immediately the taps began. The priest by the altar tapped. A whole invisible congregation tapped along the aisles. Three long and one short. He asked, what is it? News, the child said, watching him with a stern, responsible, and interested gaze. When he woke up, it was dawn. I'm going to read this because I think it's mm-hmm. necessary. Yeah. When he woke up, it was dawn. He woke with a huge feeling of hope, which suddenly and completely left him at the first sight of the prison yard. It was the morning of his death. He crouched on the floor with the empty brandy flask in his hand, trying to remember an act of contrition. Oh God, I am sorry and beg pardon for my sins, crucified, worthy of the dreadful punishments. He was confused. His mind was on other things. It was not the good death for which one always prayed. He caught sight of his own shadow on the cell wall. It had a look of surprise and grotesque unimportance. What a fool he had been to think that he was strong enough to stay when others fled. What an impossible fellow I am, he thought, and how useless. I have done nothing for anybody. Sorry, I'm underlining something. I might just as well have never lived. His parents were dead. Soon he wouldn't even be a memory. 
Perhaps after all, he was not at the moment afraid of damnation. Even the fear of pain was in the background. He felt only an immense disappointment because he had to go to God empty-handed with nothing done at all. It seemed to him at that moment that it would have been quite easy to have been a saint. It would have only need, he, it would have only needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. He felt someone who has missed happiness by seconds at, sorry, he felt like someone who has missed happiness by seconds at an appointed place. He knew now that at the end there was only one thing that counted, to be a saint. So one thing I was noticing is when the, pre, when, when the priest falls asleep, his dream is brought on by the hope calmed him for a while and he fell asleep with his head against the wall. But if you contrast that with the lieutenant, he, the lieutenant sat at his desk and put his head upon his hands and fell asleep with utter weariness. Hmm. So that the lieutenant has this, this sense of purposelessness that has suddenly come on. Then he puts his hands and his his head in his hands on his desk, and he, the weariness causes him to to dream. Mm-hmm. But for the priest, there's this sense of of hope that calms him, um, and he falls asleep with his head against the wall. And I was wondering what you make of those two images. And then we're going to talk about the dreams themselves. And then we'll have to talk about the aftermath of the priest dream. But what do you make of of those sort of physical those two two different physical um, positions i suppose in which that leads them both into sleep physical responses to their to whatever's going on inside of them symbolically and all man i did not i don't have much on this i thought (laughs) i read them and i thought oh yeah they're both tired (laughs) (laughs) it's really maybe true were you struck more by their differences david because i'm struck more by their similarities just that kind of abandonment and into sleep based well, on uh, initially, yeah. initially I was struck right. by the similarities, but then I was struck. Was well, there something different about right. the wall as opposed to the desk? Huh? I don't know. Like one is a very, like it puts the priest in a, in a, I mean, it puts the um, Lieutenant in a very sort of contrite position in a way, mm-hmm. like leaning forward on his desk and the priest is much, he's upright. He's, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just... I'll say something, David, that I did notice that's related to what you're asking is that there is in both of them a sense of accomplishment. It seems to me like there's a sense of accomplishment and that sense of accomplishment for the lieutenant yields dismay. Maybe even, I mean, like deep depression is oncoming because what left is there to do now that the gringo and the priest are, are, done Hmm. um and i think it seems to me that the priest looking at the mass it's such a curious line um let me read it 210 we just got done reading it uh a priest passed to and fro before the altar saying mass but he the whiskey priest took no notice yeah the service no longer seemed to concern him i thought gosh why not? And I wonder if it's because the whiskey priest's work is, it's done. He's finished it. This is no longer um, something to be done in anticipation. The mass is not something to be done in anticipation as it is during this life. But 
maybe he has arrived at the thing that he's anticipated. That's the best that I can do with it. And it's the beginning of life. And it seems like the, for the Lieutenant, that lack of anticipation, when the anticipation is gone, life is ending. Whereas for the priest, it's beginning. I was thinking a lot about that line that you just noticed that you pointed out there. He took no notice. The service no longer seemed to concern him. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious about the antecedent to that pronoun. <laughs> because could, I mean, in, could you read that as a priest passed to and fro before the altar saying mass, but that priest took no notice. The services no longer seem to concern him. Oh, 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 I, don't, oh. I don't think that that's necessarily what he meant. Yeah. That's that's I, I, I did a double take on that. As, I mean, I think probably it means the whiskey priest, but mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, this is what that's been one of the themes, the, the priest who, you know, kind of goes through the motions. Mm -hmm. And I think what follows the service no longer seemed to concern him. That last pronoun him, I would, man, I'd have a hard time seeing that being anybody other than the whiskey priest. Mm -hmm. I suspect Graham Greene was uh, purposely trading in some subtlety here. <laughs> right. Well, and that's part of dream theory. I don't know if Graham Greene had that in mind at all, but a lot of times in in dream theory, you personify yourself, right? You put yourself into a dream in a different form. Um, and so that's, that could be something that's happening here too. Maybe the priest and then the priest in the dream, the whiskey priest and the priest in the dream are interchangeable. Well, okay. So, but man, yeah. Okay. So it's really interesting the way he, the, the little mini story that's happening here, the way the narrative kind of progresses in this little dream. So the plates are empty. They ring the bell. The serving priest kneels before he raises the host. But he sat on, just waiting, paying no attention to the god over the altar as though that were a god for other people. Then something new happens, right? Mm -hmm. Then the glass by his plate begins to fill with wine. Yeah. And he said that the child from the banana station was serving him. So it's not the priest anymore. It's not the... This is not the the wine that you get, you know, your wafer or whatever dipped into. This is a full glass of wine being presented to him here. One of the things that he has consistently longed for throughout the whole book, right? Um, she says she got it from my father's room, which is an interesting line in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, she Did you steal it? Not exactly. She's not really, you know, being completely forthright there. And then they talk about this code and then the taps begin. And then it says, and then the priest by the altar taps and the whole congregation taps along the aisles three long and one short so like everybody starts to tap mm -hmm. um and the child is watching him with a stern responsible and interested case um hey by the way by the way isn't the tapping that they do wasn't that the the code for can i come in hmm. yeah back yeah. in the first yeah, part yeah, yeah. yes which is, that's pretty fabulous. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. And yeah, it's so good. I love this dream. Were you making the, the glass, the full glass? I mean, is that, is there something going on there that you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Heidi. I don't know what to do with that either. That so way, the wine filling itself? Is that what well, you're talking the, about? No, I mean, the girl's pouring it. 
but the glass that, by his plate began to fill with wine and looking up, he saw the child. Oh, yes. Station serving you. Yes. This is, I mean, I think this is a sacramental image, right? This is a, this is an invitation to the table in the kingdom. Heidi, isn't it curious though, that it is, I mean, I completely agree, but the rest of the mass seems so unimportant to him. Right. Yes. Um, it, it seems, I don't know. It's just kind of, it's confusing to me, but maybe you have a, a great articulation for it. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if I have a great articulation for it, but I do think that you're, you're onto something about his work has done, right? This is, this is what was asked of you then when you were eating the food that you were, that is tasteless to you. Right. That's not the table in the kingdom. The table in the kingdom is given to him by this child that he helped convert. Right. This that's his invitation, not the 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 forms of the faith, which are very, very important. The sacraments are everything that the mass is everything to a priest. Right. But mm -hmm. here it's been fulfilled. Right. He's in a place in which that that is no longer his work. Yeah. He is being ushered into the kingdom by this child who his ministry on earth has saved. And she's the first one who pours him wine and gives him new, the good news. I think that your theory, Heidi, having reread this section with you guys, is, is right. I think, I think that's it why is too. I think it yeah. fits everything, but I think it the question does. Is, yeah. Ties it all together. But the question is, you were going to say, I mean, why doesn't he give us more, which I, I wish in some ways I wish he did, but in some ways there's a lot to be said for that sense of he goes to the grave, not knowing this thing that God has woven around him, this tapestry uh -huh. that has been, that has kind of converged towards his salvation and the salvation of others. And he doesn't know, right. He's still stuck in his own little dark, like his own little dark room in his head up to the yeah. very end. But there's this grandeur, this glory that's being woven around him. I, I don't think that it's an accident though, that what happens right before that grandeur is woven around him because <laughs> you know, where he starts to think about the girl, his, his daughter, the, the yes. and he begins to sort of, confess despite not having a confessor and he says um oh god help her damn me i deserve it but let her live forever and this was the love he should have felt for every soul in the world all the fear and the wish to save concentrated unjustly on the one child he began to weep um this he thought this is what i should feel all the time for everyone and he tried to turn his brain away towards the half caste lieutenant even the dentist he had once sat with for a few minutes <laughs> the child at the banana station, calling up a long succession of faces, pushing at his attention as if it were a heavy door which wouldn't budge. For those were all in danger too. He prayed, God help them. But in the moment of prayer, he switched back to his child beside the rubbish dump, and he knew it was for her only that he prayed, another failure. Hmm. Um, and then down below that, the eight hard, hopeless years seemed to him only to be a caricature of service, a few communions, a few confessions, and an endless bad example. He thought, if I had only one soul to offer so that I could say, look what I've done. People had died for him. They had deserved a saint and a tinge of bitterness spread across his mind for their sake that God hadn't thought fit to send them one. Padre Jose and me, he thought. Padre Jose and me. And he took a drink again from the brandy flask. He thought of the cold faces of the saints rejecting him. Hmm. And it seems like 
there's this sense of despair that's rising with him that's sort of coming yeah. with his confession with his the sense of repentance um but that uh, that that comes right before this dream um that he in a way had to get you know he had to be willing to say and, and you know da- you know damn me say of her mm-hmm. um he had to be willing to be sacrificed so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all that the whole journey led to sort of that, that moment, that confession, that, that, uh, I don't want to say breakdown, but that, that ultimate sense of, or act of selflessness, that ultimate prayer of selflessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, the, and then it's after that, that the dream comes and that can't be an accident. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, Part of the reason that I just insisted that people read this book to the end is because for me, it's such a picture of what the Christian life is like, especially as you get a little bit later into life. It's so, um, well, I'll just, I'll speak for myself. I so often wonder like, am I doing anybody any good is like, the, the things that I care about, the things that I put my effort toward, um, does it matter? Does it even matter at all? Mm-hmm. And I am so with the priest in that feeling, you know, he, it's, he is, and he has worked so much harder than I worked and he has been in a situation so much grimmer than the ones that I've been in. Um, and I think that the conclusion of the book for me is so, encouraging because you can see in these in these very subtly drawn ways that there that his life has been efficacious that God has used him in some ways probably in ways that he did not think himself worthy of being used and ways that he didn't anticipate that he would be efficacious and at the know? end it seems to make clear that he that he doesn't believe we're efficacious right he believes right, going right. To God empty-handed yeah absolutely and i it, there are other books that i have also resonated with really deeply um never mind i'll, I'll that's a slightly different subject but that's part of the reason why i just find this book to be so the conclusion of this book is so powerful is because you do see that the work that he did, it was not done in, in vain. Mm-hmm. As evidenced by the fact that the book ends with a new priest showing up. Right. And also I think that boy, yes, if there's another conversion in the book, I think it's that boy. So like the final lines of, um, the book, let me just find them, are the boy who has been listening to the story from his mother and um, the man knocks at the door. He, Mm -hmm. and he names himself as a priest and the boy lets him in. Mm -hmm. This is to me, I think, maybe even a more clear indication of someone's conversion than what we saw with Coral. Yep. Agree. Even though I think, I think what we saw with Coral, I think there's like absolute reason to think, yeah, this is a conversion story that, that we're witnessing here. So the boy, um, 
is another evidence that the priest has been, that his work is counted in some way, that his life is counted in some way. There's this bit here, right, where the mother's telling the story. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, and that one, the boy said, that, sh- that they shot today. Was he a hero too? Yes. The one who stayed with us that time? Yes, he was one of the martyrs of the church. <laughs> he had a funny smell, one of the little girls said. Yeah. Um, you must never say that again, the mother said. He may be one of the saints. Um, and then, yes, he was one of the heroes of the faith. They talk about the idea of the, like, the relic. Um, and then there's this bit, I'm trying to find it. The lieutenant comes and the boy spits at him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Which, by the way, can I just interject here? In some early Christian services, um, part of... I was, this is so true. This is, this is so good. Right? Part of the baptism promise is a renunciation of the works of Satan. Yeah, okay. So in the, in the Orthodox Church, for example, there's a service called when someone becomes a catechumen, it's the, the service that brings that welcomes them into the church. It's like becoming catechized or whatever the words are. And one of the, and traditionally you would turn away from the service and you would, you literally spit across. Right. It's right. Still, some churches still do that. Um, so yeah, you, you say you renounce Satan and you, you literally, you literally spit. I don't know if there's a practice in the Catholic church. I'm, no, I think there used services. to be, I think after Gregory, this was part of a lot of Catholic church practices. They would, so part of the renunciation of Satan and his works is you turn toward the West and spit. And then to begin your confession, you turn toward the East, mm-hmm. a sign yeah. of like turning toward the sunrise, the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's interesting that the boy spits at the lieutenant or spits, mm-hmm. you know, like Accurately. it's a renunciation. Yeah, right. It's a renunciation of Satan and his works. And what does he do after that? He opens the door to the priest to come in. Yes. And I love that while he's lying there, he can hear the whispered prayers in the other room. Yes. What did you think of the, what did you think of the uh, fact that right before the priest comes, there's another dream. So the boy said, it says the boy very soon he went to sleep. He dreamed that the priest whom they had shot that morning was back in the house, dressed, dressed in the clothes his father had lent him and laid up stiffly for burial. The boy sat beside the bed and his mother read out of a very long book all about how the priest had acted in front of the bishop, the part of Julius Caesar. There was a fish basket at her feet and the fish were bleeding, wrapped in her handkerchief. He was very bored and very tired and somebody was hammering nails into a coffin in the passage. Suddenly the dead priest winked at him, an unmistakable flicker of the eyelid. Just like that. He woke and there was a crack on the knocker in the outer door. The priest winks. He wakes up to a knock at the door and then he opens the door for the other priest. Cool, right? I love it. I think, well, and I think to go back to our conversation earlier about form and structure, you know, apart from the thematic significance of this, which is immense, we also mm-hmm. then have a reminder that this is this is a book that goes in cycles. It's circular less than it is linear. And mm-hmm. so we have then a new story beginning just as the old one is ending. 
as well as a reminder that God does not leave his people desolate, right? So there's just that symmetry, like the chiasm kind of the circle closes again and begins again. Here's another cycle um, of redemption in this nation and for these people. And by the way, I just really, the spinning thing reminded me of the very beginning, right? Because Tench has Tench is spinning forlornly in the sun. He gathered his body. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. The sun. I forgot about that. Hmm. Right. Yes. That the, that the, again, we talked a lot about this on Facebook. Um, the idea of what do the teeth, why such an emphasis on teeth and on spit and this, this idea of that, that the mouth can be used for good as well as for evil. Right. So, here we have a renunciation. This represented by spittle is actually redemptive in the life of this boy. I just got a notification that said that somebody tweeted, um, losing your eternal soul because of Twitter would be the lamest way to go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, it feels appropriate (laughs) in some way. Yeah. Um, do you, do you think that we're supposed to, so this is my final question for today. And we're going to answer a lot of questions. We'll continue the discussion, <laughs> people's questions. Are we supposed to... So we talked about whether we have a villain and we have a hero. Are we supposed to view the priest as having been a saint? Or yes. Have... What is the conclusion say, we're I supposed say, to draw with that? I say yes. So, so then he is wrong in his self-assessment. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. I think what gives you pause, hiding? Well, I think that that is well, does David's question is could have been phrased two different ways, right? Do you think that the priest is a saint is different from are we supposed to think the priest is a saint? Right. In some ways you're asking mm-hmm. author intent and yeah, I knew what I was is, asking. And and the message. <laughs> yeah, and the message of this book. And that I'm I'm really I may be wrong on this because you jumped right in there, but I, I'm unwilling to take a stand on that. I, I think it's open to interpretation by the reader. I think you can read this and argue that he was a saint, and you can read it and argue that no, he was not a saint. Um, I don't think you can read it and make him a bad guy. I think that's just reading the novel wrong, but I'm not sure you have to interpret him as a saint. One thing that I think is really interesting. And, and I, this is, this might come across almost like a criticism of the, the church in some ways, but what if what green is getting at here is that the stories that we tell of the people, um, are what preserve the church. Like, I mean, so, so the mother tells the boy that this, that this guy was a priest, right? And then or this, this priest was a saint, right? And then he takes that with him when he opens the door. And that leads into the, to the, the preservation of the, or that implies the preservation of the church despite great trial. So whether or not he's actually a priest, does the fact that, that the church commemorates people and tells those stories of people, um, is that an act of preservation that, that goes beyond the, the actual worth of the person himself? Oh, one, oh, oh. one thing that I think is really interesting is that the priest, when he's reflecting, he says it would only have needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. 
And I think those that word little there is very important because he's not saying if only I'd, you know, my whole life I'd been this specific way. He's like, if only there was a little restraint and a little courage. And and what we don't know is what restraint and what what little bit of restraint and what little bit of courage did he meet his end with? Because we don't, we're not there for the end. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I want to rewind. I want to go, I want to go back to this. Heidi. Can you do a rewind sound effect? <laughs> um, I answered like, yes, he's a saint. You think it's, it's left up to the interpretation of the reader. You guys haven't asked the obvious response counter question yet. Maybe not. What is it? I'm not good at obvious things. I'm good at like really obscure things, like figuring out what happened to Coral. <laughs> well, like if someone, if your student, if your students were in a class and they were like, is he a saint? What would you say to him? What would you say to that student? Would be your oh, yes. What would you, but what, <laughs> no, but you don't want to give the, you're not, if you're oh, in you, class you and you're like, say, I'm not going to give you the you? answer. Right. Yeah. But, the the yeah. question is like, what is, well, tell me what a saint is. Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. 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 yeah so yeah. that's the obvious counter question that neither of you got. So you both failed that test. We both failed. Um, no, 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 yeah. no, no. I'm just kidding. No, so. I, I think I'm, and I'm not going to allow you guys to say this because I really want to hear Heidi's answer. I feel like I can give a cogent reply to the question, what is the saint? And thus I can feel, I feel confident saying, yes, he was. So you feel like you have a definition under which he, in which he fits. Yes. Hmm. And that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to go on? Can that on? be your final thought? Please <laughs> continue. Yeah, I mean, if you, do you have time, Tim? Oh, I do have time, but I feel like if I do that, then Heidi gets off um, the hook. Yes, exactly. Heidi gets off the hook. Well, I mean, I'm never off the hook, so go ahead and let no, we'll, find a, we'll find a way to bring it back to her. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't mean a saint in that the, uh, church is going to do the requisite research as it does in researching saints for sainthood. I don't mean that. I mean, does God, will God welcome this man into his kingdom as having lived in some way um, an exemplary life of spiritual devotion? And I think the answer to that is yes. And I think, and I would say that is the, the definition of a saint. Now we've got to get into like semantics because in the Protestant tradition, you know, the third kind of like, pillar of the tradition is the priesthood of all believers. Um, and so there's some sort of recognition though, within Protestantism, like not everybody really is a priest, but there is golly, I'm really getting way off subject. I think bottom line, there is a difference between what the church recognizes in her best efforts, what the church recognizes as a saint and who God recognizes as a saint. Sometimes they correspond perfectly. Sometimes they do not. I don't think that the Catholic church, if this was a real character, 
would give the whiskey priest sainthood, I do think, based on the narrative that we've been given by Graham Greene, that he will be welcomed into the kingdom by God, by Peter and the other saints as something unique and significant. Huh. Now, see, now I feel like the conversation's just beginning, right? When we have to right, go. I know, because, I know. because I was, based on my own worship tradition, interpreting this in a more formal sainthood kind of uh, sense. So I'm, if the question is, will he be welcomed into the kingdom of God? And that's an emphatic yes. Yeah. So David, very good, very good, forcing us to define the terms of the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if that's if that's the case, Heidi, like you and I are in agreement that but, it could be it could be interpreted either way. Like, will would the church, in its official capacity, be able to recognize what the whiskey recognize the whiskey priest as a saint? Boy, I could read that either way. Well, so. In my conversation with Jeremy Bagby that went up on the formal podcast this week, we actually ended up talking about this for a few minutes and the concept that like, look at someone like St. Peter, I mean, St. Paul, Mm. he becomes canonized in the church, but he's also someone who did a great deal of evil and because he, because he believed he was doing good. Right. Right. So this comparison of the Lieutenant versus St. Paul Mm. came up. I mean, I don't mean there's a direct comparison there, but it came up. So I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that someone, that the church would canonize somebody who at one point or another did things that were improper or downright evil and renounced those things. The, the obstacle that I see, though, is the church has a narrative body of what Paul's life was like before his conversion and after his conversion. It's in his epistles. It's in the acts of the apostles. Um, I think in like in real life, would the church have been able to look at the life of the whiskey priest and say, ah, there's a saint without that kind of corpus of Graham Greene's narrative without, without Graham Greene's narrative, could the church do that? Just looking well, at the sort of phenomenized life? I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, we're getting into like some very technical specifics of how the church decides to canonize someone, but like martyrdom plays a big role in that. Mm-hmm, so there have right. been, so there have been figures within church history who I, and I don't know as much about the Catholic tradition, but there have been people within church history who've been largely canonized sainted primarily because they were martyred in the name of Christ. Yeah, that we know very, virtually nothing else about, or we know only the the, six, the circumstances that led to their martyrdom, for example. Right. So, I think that what we are, I think that whether or not we are going with capital S sainthood, lowercase s, however you yeah. want to put it, that yeah. that sense of that the sense that he is a martyr in the church, that that means something very deep and something very um, transcendent, um, and that that's what feeds the life of the church in some ways. Yes. Um, is, is, um, is not supposed to, is something that's definitely there in the story. I don't really know right. where my sentence was going, but that's how I finished it. Well, and <laughs> it goes to the, what you brought up, David, which we don't have time to go into, but is crucial in reading this novel is the question of the stories that the church tells itself. 
So the largely the saint, the stories of the saints in, in the technical term, in the liturgical traditions, the stories of the saints sound a lot more like Juan than they do like the whiskey priest. I listen to the saint stories every day with my children. So these they don't sound quite as saccharine and, you know, but there's a lot right. of emphasis on that traditional, what we talked about, about the heroes, right? Their courage, their, their, uh, moral fortitude, right? That, so the question of whether or not the priest is a saint for a Catholic, for anyone in liturgical traditions, using that word in technical sense, that is a, those are deep waters. Mm-hmm. Because right. they hear right. in that hiding, they would hear the sorts of stories that the mother is reading Juan. And then they would like survey the life that we see in Graham Greene's book. And they would say that life does not correspond with the stories that Juan's mother is reading him. Exactly. And as, you know, as David brought up, there is that, that, that sense of the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? It is that moral fortitude. It is that courage. It is that courageous resistance to evil and, uh, that that is the the lifeblood of the people of God that form the imagination of the upcoming generation. Well, I think so, that that's that's why it's so important. Sorry, sorry, I think I was breaking. Yeah. Up. Well, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Sorry. Well, that that Graham Greene is the question is is he subverting those stories or is he giving us a new kind of saint to. Uh, to emulate the saint who's allowed to be tormented and have questions and yet still Mm -hmm. is the martyr that nourishes the church. So that's why it's so important that he comes back though. Yes. Because he could have left. He he comes back um, in the name of basically in the name of Christ, right? To, to hear the confession of, of a deeply evil person, right? He, he, he could have escaped, but he, he knows he knows like Christ with Judas, what's going to happen. He, he's perfectly aware that this is that going back is going to mean he dies, but nonetheless, he, he has that little bit of courage, right? He has mm-hmm. enough courage to go back down the mountain and go to the place where he know that his, he's going to be killed for doing it. And he, instead of running away as he has been or enduring or however you want to put it, I mean that in a negative sense, but by plodding along for as long as he have, he has, um, he, he does the opposite of that. Now he turns and turns directly towards the face of that evil and he walks into it. And in doing that, he goes there in the name of Christ and he pays the price for it. And his blood is spilled mm-hmm. for that reason. And that's not, I think that that is the central core moment in the book when he turns around. I mean, there's all this other stuff that, that leads to, that means certain things, but the story turns on the moment when he turns and walks down the mountain in the name of right. Christ and, and, proceeds to walk to his own death he he he's a martyr not because just because he was captured or because he was he was killed by a terrorist or something he because he chose to to in the name of christ to do his duty um his like ontological duty as we talked about in previous episodes and and do what he's been called to do and that he pays and he pays for that and that is what fulfills that little bit of something that he that he's saying he wish he'd had that's why he's wrong that he doesn't go empty-handed Right. Right. Which is why I think, I mean, there's no doubt the priest is a martyr. There's no doubt of that. Whether or not he's a saint, I think is the perfect question for the end of the book. Yeah, And that's why I would say I'm not willing to take a stand on it in terms of the loaded term that saint is in the multiple traditions of the church. Yeah. 
Right, right. Yeah. And that that's that we did open up a can of, you know. And right. I just wanna I wanna point out for the record that where Heidi showed discretion <laughs> and um I like rushed in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> no. Let the record show. No, I think you did exactly what the book is asking. Right. You're like, no, I love this man. And I think he was a martyr and he's welcomed into the kingdom like that. That's a legitimate stand to take, whether or not that's Graham Greene's stand. I think we're in. I think the, it ends with a question mark hmm. on on that issue. Well, speaking of can ending I, with a question mark. Thing, can I say one thing, David, and maybe we could talk about this during the Q&A, but it ends with a question mark. There is this really. So Graham Greene is a Catholic novelist in the middle of the 20th century, and there are a couple of other Catholic novelists um, or Catholic fiction writers in the middle part of the 20th century that like to end with question marks. I think Flannery O'Connor ends oftentimes with question marks, not in every story, but she kind of like demands that the reader get involved and kind of name what's going on. You mm -hmm. can't get to the end of one of her stories and not be, and understand it and not be sort of internally activated. And another one is Walker Percy. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I feel like David, you have read, we've talked a little bit about Walker Percy, but oh yeah, so many of his novels end with um, a decision moment where the primary character has gone through this, you know, like tremendously, confusing ordeal and then they arrive at basically an either or choice and the book ends the book ends and i think that that i i love those books um and i think that graham green i don't think it's like walker person that he's demanding an either or sort of choice but he is asking the reader for a narrative decision of some sort huh yeah that's good that's well put <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for. Okay. <laughs> I do love that the book ends with him, the boy, opening the door and kissing the priest's hand, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Me um, too. Okay, so next week we're going to do the Q&A. Uh, post your questions on Facebook. Email them to me at closereadspodcasts uh, at gmail.com if you like. But I also want to let you remind people that we have a lot of great content out there. We've got our daily poem. That's been... Uh, great to see people listening. We just did our uh, Robert Louis Stevenson competition where lots of kids were like way more kids than I thought were memorizing poems and reciting them and posting them on social media. We're going to do something like that again uh, soon. Uh, we have The Plays the Thing, uh, Andrew Kern and Angelina Stanford just are finishing up their conversation of Much Ado About Nothing. And we've got lots of other great content. So if you are enjoying this content, then we would definitely appreciate it if you would go over to patreon.com slash close reads and consider supporting us. Um, we are spending the month of November kind of kicking in our fundraising. Um, your support is what enables us to do pretty much anything that we do. So if you um, are in, you know, up for some in some way, financially supporting the work of the Cersei Institute and all the various products that come out of that, whether that's the Close Reads Podcast Network, all the other podcasts like the Mason Jar or the Former Journal or the stuff you find on the website or the conferences or whatever it is um, that we could really use your support. Um, we have this quote that we like to use when it comes to this sort of thing. And it's from Anne of Green Gables. And it's when Anne uh, 
realizes, she says, kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out that there are so many of them in the world. And that's kind of how we feel. So um, your support um, goes a long way, but we're also really grateful for it. So uh, please consider supporting Cersei Institute this November and December, if you would. Um, it's a key month for us to be able to proceed into the new year um, with all the you know, continuing to do all the programs that we have going on. Um, so if you like them, please consider. You can donate, obviously, through Patreon or over at SourceTheInstitute.com and just hit the donate button. There's monthly giving and then also you can give in to our matching fund. So anyway, I just wanted to add that here at the end, do a little bit of um, begging. But uh, we really do appreciate all your support and really do feel like we have a lot of kindred spirits out there who we are conversing with. And the Facebook, the Close Reads uh, Facebook page proves that, uh, if nothing else does. So mm-hmm. thanks to everyone who's been supporting and just uh, we are grateful for any support you can, you can give us heading into 2019. All right. Well, that's it. Anything else you guys want to add? Support nope. Searcy. Support Searcy. Mm-hmm. A nonprofit organization that does remarkable work. And I think David, part of the, you guys look so good, Like the website looks so good. The conferences are so well run that people often think, Oh, they're a professional organization. They're a, they're a for-profit business, but that's not true. You're a nonprofit business. You're supported largely by private donations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Private donations. And, um, a lot of our programs make I'm holding up a zero right now. So, like, or, or they hold, they make virtually nothing profit wise. So yeah, we have a few things that we sell and then things like webinars and, and your donations and things like that are what allow us to meet our payroll every month. And a lot of things um, we do like this that are ostensibly free. I mean, people support them, but you can listen to these shows for free. So um, we want to continue to do that because it's, that's our mission. That's our vocation. But um, anybody who can yeah. support enables you know, a lot of people around the world to hear about us and to, um, to hear about classical education. So anyway, we, we, we I, that's enough groveling, you know, <laughs> digital groveling. So, uh, thanks to both of you for being on the show and thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, don't forget that the next book we are going to do here on close reads is the great Gatsby. So if you want to get started on that, feel free to do so. And I will, um, be posting a reading schedule for that very soon. First episode will go up in two weeks, though. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Mm-hmm.